Hello and welcome along to episode 7 of the Randstad Technologies podcast. Today Richard and I are joined by Craig Jones from Stats NZ. How about you introduce yourself quickly Craig? Uh, my name is Craig Jones, I'm Deputy Government Statistician at Stats NZ and Deputy Chief Executive there. I've spent about 20 years in the public service, uh, mainly in Australia, 16 years in, in the New South Wales public sector, primarily in research and analytical roles, um, you know, starting as a senior researcher and then moving my way into different uh, leadership roles, mainly in justice, a bit of time in central agencies, education, and now in Stats NZ. So probably call myself a bit of a data nerd. Uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, the thing that's motivated me in my career is how can we use data to inform policy uh, to improve public services, basically. You'll know by now, Richard Van Ark is here to ask the questions. Very keen to hear from you. What is a data scientist? What's a data engineer? And how are these two related, you reckon? Uh, I reckon uh, whoever you ask will give you a different answer. True, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I don't pretend uh, myself to be an expert in how you might differentiate these roles, but I'll give you my view on it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, it's for a data scientist. You know, there's a joke about this uh, in statistical circles. But a data scientist is just a statistician who lives in California. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, it's a, it's kind of a new field, right? Uh, actually, and that, that actually underlies some... Uh, some of the challenges with data science, I think, and traditional statisticians and, and people have come from different empirical backgrounds and how they relate with, with data science. But, you know, I was trying to think of an analogy uh, for what's a data engineer and data scientist and yep. how, you know, how you might relate them. And I suppose um, my view of it is, is a, a data engineer is the person who maintains the, the pipes in your house, yep. you know, uh, the, the kind of infrastructural side of it. Yeah. Uh, and you might think of the data scientist as the person who paints your house, uh, although it doesn't quite capture it because uh, it doesn't quite capture the interdependency between the two of them. Yeah, uh, it might more be that uh, you know the data engineer maintains your house, mm-hmm. and the data scientist comes in, sits on your beanbag, and watches your Netflix. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, so they're kind of they're critically dependent on the engineer to provide the infrastructure for them to be able to do their work. So, I guess I I think of uh, um, you know an engineer in the kind of data area as you know, do your data warehousing, stitch your data together, um, uh, make sure it's all running smoothly. But the data scientist is the person who kind of takes the value from that or creates value from that. Yeah. You know, turns that data, which is just kind of you know zeros and ones, mm-hmm. turns it into knowledge. Uh, you know, I don't know whether that's a sort of uh, official definition of it or not, but um, no, I think that's you, how I would describe it. Yeah, and you're totally right. Everybody has this kind of a different way of approaching it um, or a different opinion about it. Or I kind of like the, the, the saying a statistician that lives in, in, in California. If you look at data and, and the value of data, um, where do you think the value of data sits and how would you go about actually proving the value of data? It's infinite, right? Mm. Uh, and and only uh, only going to get more valuable with time. Um, you know, as more and more of our activities digitized, uh, more and more data is created, uh, and you know the p- potential to grow is there. So um, you know, you you often hear people talk about this. You know, the possibilities we haven't even thought of yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, increasingly, you know, the sort of um, data is the uh, is the resource that companies are investing in. Yeah. And, you know, it's for good reason because, you know, there's a huge amount of value that can be derived from it. Yeah. Um, I think governments have probably been a bit slower, in my view, to, to realise that, uh, partly because there are different drivers and incentives for government um, than there are for private business. Yeah. But increasingly, government's looking at this as well and saying, hell, we've got to get our data sorted out. Yeah. 
because it can inform what we do, how we do it. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about um, opportunities that data data can have for uh, improving business processes, mm-hmm. you know, on one level you've got things like, you know, manufacturers using sort of sensor data yeah. to identify defects before they happen. Identifying defects before they happen yeah, it's yeah. like the minority yeah. report. You yeah, know, it's kind of... Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there's there's just huge huge opportunities there. Web retailers using analytics to understand who their customers are, so they can target their services, you know, their their products towards uh, the right people. You know, it's just huge opportunity. And and as I said, you know, government we we haven't got there yet. Uh, you know, with some really good examples, but so much more potential that we haven't yet exploited. Yeah. Um, what kind of potential do you think? I think for me, um, the value for for government, if we can take much more of a kind of customer-centered approach to the work mm-hmm. that we do, um, use customer insights to drive uh, efficiency and effectiveness of government services, that's that's where the, the power lies. So, you know, if we can use data and analytics to understand policy problems, understand our kind of customer segments, uh, understand who needs what services, then we can target them much more effectively. But not only that, we can, we can work out whether the things that we invest in are working Right. We yeah. spend, I don't know what we spend in, in the New Zealand government, maybe 80 billion a year, I don't know, maybe more, I'm not quite sure what the total spend is. And most of that's just in paying, you know, public servants and teachers and nurses and doctors and so forth. But there's a lot of discretionary stuff around the edge, mm-hmm. right? and you've got choice around that. And um, and that's where that's where the power lies, I think. If we can make better choices around how to spend that discretionary money yeah. and understand whether it works and feed that back into the policy process. Yeah. Uh, we can really get get better value for taxpayers' money. So, so I think for me, that's the primary thing. You, mm-hmm. you do lots of fancy things and you know, show new insights and so forth. That's yeah. all great. Um, but cool. if it's not actually yeah. delivering value for uh, taxpayers' money, I think you know, you've got to question yeah. why you're doing it. You briefly mentioned different motivators, maybe for for the government to use and and, and really sort of look at the value of data, than than maybe a commercial uh, company would have. Do you have an example, maybe? What I'm talking about there is yeah. your operating models are quite different, yeah. you know, and the underlying incentives. You know, most businesses are profit oriented, it's appropriate. That's not obviously what government's there for. No, Sometimes it's harder to derive a direct line of sight between what you put into it, you know, what comes out of it yeah. and what the outcome is. Yeah. Because the you know the outcomes can be harder to measure. So so you know I think there's a, a fair bit to go to mature the the kind of data system that we have yeah. in public policy yeah. in order to kind of have good data on the things that matter. Yeah. And no one agrees on that. Yeah, right. Yeah, so yeah. you've got to get agreement on what's important. Uh, whereas everyone in the business, all the board members, go yeah, actually making money is what we're here for. Yeah. Of course, you know staff well-being and so forth are really important. But at the end of the day, we're a business. Whereas you know that's not as clear cut for. for governments yeah uh, because the range of things they're trying to do is so so broad how do you then unlock that uh i mean i think part of that's around good governance and having good processes in place to make sure we get agreement on that it'll change you know mm-hmm. democracies that uh, changes every three years and governments say well actually that's not as important anymore and this is more important so uh, you've got to be pretty agile and adaptable 
So one of the things, you know, for example, at Stats before I joined, uh, we had a project called IANS, Indicators Aotearoa, which is basically creating a basket of indicators, outcome indicators, right? Yeah. So you sort of you're saying, well, this is the breadth of things that could be important mm -hmm. now or in the future. Let's get good data to flow through to those so that, you know, you can kind of choose your outcomes depending on the priorities of the day. Now, I think that's the right thing to do. Through that, though, you know, all a whole range of things that governments had already said were important, mm -hmm. there's no data for all right, so we've got to invest in that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're doing some work at the moment around that to create what's called a data investment plan, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit like the defence uh, investment pipeline, you know, a 10-year yep. plan to say, well, actually, what kind of capability are we going to need in the future? Yeah. Broad capability, not yep. just a part of that's content, yep. what's the data we'll need. Yeah. Uh, part of it's kind of infrastructure and part of it's human capability, you know, what sort of people are we going to need in order to do this work in the future. I think that's the right way to think about it because... You've got to invest in this. I mean, it's it's. I know it's a cliche, but you've got to invest in this as an asset because yeah, for organisations just and and government alike, uh, it's increasingly the lifeblood. You know, if you don't have a good asset maintenance, yeah, you know, you run it into the ground, yeah, and it takes a long time to dig yourself out of that. I've yeah. been in experiences where we've tried to do that. It's actually really hard. You know, it's hard work when you run your infrastructure into the ground to rebuild it change the way that people work to kind of modernize your infrastructure and you know, get up to speed with where everyone else is at and derive insight from the data you sit on so and yeah. how, how do you create that buy-in yeah i think that's difficult for for government actually because there's never enough to go around mm -hmm. you know there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes <laughs> into uh government decision making that uh, is not like what what you or i would argue yeah. uh, necessarily there's a whole bunch of things that influence what what policy gets prioritised and it's often not the infrastructural, you know, the kind of that basic, yeah. what's seen as back office stuff. Yeah. Right? And often you only really notice it when it goes wrong. Uh, and we've seen some really classic examples of that, you know, because governments are making trade-offs over mm -hmm. short periods of time, you know, it's the short horizons, they have to make choices about where they put their discretionary dollars. And often it's really hard to get investment into this yeah. core basic infrastructural stuff over getting more police on the streets, mm. getting more nurses into hospitals, mm. paying teachers more, you know, all the things that are all important things to fund, right? That's yeah. what the government, that's what the, that's what the country is arguing for. And that's what they, you know, and that's what they're, that's what they're demanding from government. So, you know, you can understand it on one level. Mm -hmm. So it is quite a challenge. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I've been in government for 20 years, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And in those 20 years, the increased interest in multiple jurisdictions around this yeah. and the prioritization of it is growing and it will only continue to grow. You kind of touched upon already uh, on the process and the governance of data and that ties nicely into my next question around data governance. How important is data governance? It's a, it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, all my research says critically important, yeah. right? Like absolutely every bit of me says, yeah, you know, this is not going to work unless you've got good governance in place. And I still agree with that. But it's a challenge because... People don't necessarily understand it. Uh, I've had conversations where I've said, you know what, in order to make our data uh, integrate more effectively, uh, interoperate you know, computer systems and so forth so we can drive more value from it, we need good quality data standards and good governance and decision-making around what we prioritise and how we yeah. do that. Oh, I don't need another governance board. You know, oh, God, I've stood on so many of these things. So, you know, it's like this, yeah. it's another allergic reaction to it. But if you don't, right, you just make uh, haphazard choices. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't prioritize the, the most important things. 
and you can't make good decisions and also make sure that the right people have input into those decision yeah. decision making as well. So, you know, you'll always end up in a kind of anarchistic kind of system unless you have good governance around that. So, so I guess that's a long-winded way of saying it's really important. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, in, in my current role, uh, I'm what's called the lead for the data system, which which basically gives effect to the, the government statisticians, so the, yeah. the chief executive of stats. Uh, gives effect to his functional leadership role mm-hmm. as the government's chief data steward. So basically what that means is uh, he has accountability for making sure that we can get coherence across the whole government data system. So how can we align that to make sure that we measure the things that matter, uh, that that information flows between agencies yeah. into stats, for example, and out, um, so that we could derive more value from it. So, yeah. and governance is really critical to that. So, we've got good governance boards in place and so forth to help with some of that. Yeah. Um, I think we've probably got a little bit more work to do on that. But, um, you know, we're trying to do things like build transparency into the system mm-hmm. about how we use data. Yeah. You know, one of the big risks that we face is uh, public trust and confidence in how government uses personal information. You know, you've seen some really good examples of, you know, Probably through the right intent, mm-hmm. uh, agencies are trying to use data to drive better service delivery. Yeah. But they've kind of pushed the boundaries of that social license that we have with the public about yeah. how we can use their information. And um, I won't name names, but mm. there have been some high-profile examples of that. So if you don't have good governance in place to make sure that we are uh, building that trust and confidence so that people know what the rules of the game are, so particularly for our treaty partners who you know treat data about themselves as Tauranga. Mm. It's, mm. it's a treasure and they have absolute sovereignty over Tauranga. So yeah. how do you make sure that iwi have the right level of decision making into how their data is used yeah. uh, by the government? You know, there's a critical relationship here, right? Mm. And that goes to the heart of the Treaty of Waitangi because yeah. government needs information to govern yeah. while Māori need to have absolute sovereignty over that. So, yeah. you know, you can't you can't make that work unless mm. you have good governance processes yeah. in place. So... It's kind of fundamental to how we give effect to the, the treaty of Waitangi yeah. efforts. Um, yeah, and in November we've got the Privacy Act um, yeah. coming to, uh, to to effect. What are your thoughts about that one, actually? Privacy is enabling. You know, privacy legislation is enabling of this. Actually, yeah. it's kind of critical infrastructure to enable. It's not to say you can't do things. Yeah. You know, of course, it says that there are things that you can't do, but but it's actually uh, it's actually a primary enabler of the kind of work that we're talking about because. Yeah. It sets the rules of the game. It says this is, you know, this is what you need to do to make sure that you're protecting people's privacy, and um, uh, so it, it enables us to to do our work within a kind of framework that, that yeah. we know what the boundaries are. So um, I think there's opportunity to make to make sure that everyone's clearer on on what those rights and entitlements are, yeah, um, and to have a public conversation around that. Sorry, a little tangential to your question, but we're doing work in this space as well around the use of government's use of our algorithm because yeah, we know that that's a public concern. Yeah. Uh, and again, through a couple of high-profile examples where the boundaries have been pushed too far mm-hmm. and people have felt, you know, actually that could be entrenching bias and discrimination in the yeah. system if you do that. Mostly, my view of it, depending on how you define an algorithm, yeah. right, mm-hmm. at, the heart, mm-hmm. at one, ex- one logical extent, every computer program is an algorithm. Uh, and we use those, you know, yeah. ubiquitously every day. But there are some experimental new uses of those mm-hmm. that actually we need to we need to be much clearer about how we use those because yeah. I think that 
government needs to be transparent and accountable for use of personal information if, we, yeah. if we're using it in those experimental yeah. ways yeah. to make sure that we're not entrenching bias. When used well, very important. Yeah. those kinds of things yeah. can actually avoid bias and mm. discrimination because every human being is biased. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in the absence of uh, more structured ways of doing things, yeah. you know, we can entrench that bias in the way that humans make decisions. Yeah. So when used really well, you can use algorithms and you know, predictive modeling and stuff like that to actually get the human decision-making out of it yeah. uh, and make sure that everyone's got a fair whack at it. But yeah. we just need to be transparent and accountable when we're doing that. So that you can shine a light in there and say, well, actually, yeah, that does look fair. Yeah. Or no, that doesn't look fair. I'm yeah. going to do something different. So yeah. we're doing some work around that at the moment to um, uh, work with our agencies around town to make sure that everyone's signing up to a way of doing things, yeah. basically, to say, yeah. you know, we think this is important. We, we commit to doing certain things when, we, when we're using these yeah. experimental, new, innovative, you know, might be machine learning or yeah. neural networks or whatever. Yeah. Um, or it could be basic kind of business rules that we're mm. building into how we deliver services. Uh, no matter how we're doing it, that we're actually transparent when there's a high risk that it could go wrong um, and a big impact on people if it does. I'm um, very curious and, and I really look forward to how that's going to gonna roll up because it's a good, it's almost a conversation on itself, I think, is like, you know, with an algorithm and the, and the bias of that every kind of human being has by nature, but having an algorithm taking the bias, I've taken the emotion out. Right, but then still afterwards, put kind of like the human touch to it. It's uh, yeah, I like it. Like it's it a, it's, I mean, there's quite a long research history around this. Um, you know, my started my career in justice, and mm. it's quite a big research history around um, comparing actuarial approaches yeah. to identifying yeah. someone's risk of reoffending. Yeah. To clinical judgments about that. Yeah. You know, clinicians would say, "Well, I can tell who's going to reoffend." Yeah. Up, right. Yeah. But there's a very strong research literature saying that actuarial approaches are actually much better at doing that if you've got good data feeding into it. Yeah. Because people bring biases to that. Mm. Like, oh, the person there looks like they might reoffend, mm. whereas actually they might have a, have a background set of characteristics that means they're not going to yeah. reoffend. So it's kind of, you know, on one level, you know, if you just left it to clinicians, sorry, clinicians out there, but if you mm. just left it entirely to them, mm. maybe the, you know those risk assessments would would not be as good. But I think there's a question about. Can you put the two things together, mm -hmm. the actuarial approach and clinical oversight over yep. the top, and you know those yep. things combined are better than either one in isolation. So you know, there's 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 work to be done, I think, in government around how best we do that. Yep. Um, but the transparency and accountability, I think, is um, absolutely critical. Yeah. And on, on your governance question, just one one further thought yes. on that. Yeah, yeah. The critical thing for me, I think, is to make a data system more effective and efficient. Computers need to be able to talk to each other, yeah. you know, and take the humans out of it because governments are never going to invest in so many people. Uh, so we need to make sure that systems are interoperable. And, mm -hmm. and that's where the governance becomes really important because, you know, I did a piece of work when I was in a former organization that I won't name to identify how we classify gender in all of our systems. Yeah. You know, there were 37 different ways that we classify, you know, standards mm -hmm. for for gender, yeah. right? So you can't make, even that's in one organization, mm. right? You can't make those those data sets integrate without a huge amount of manual invention yeah. if counting gender that yeah. many different ways, right? Because yeah, yeah. you just can't stitch them together. It's just, and that's only one. It's one variable, right? Yeah. One that you would think would be kind of relatively, you might, be, you might be yeah. three or four different <laughs> classifications. Yeah. And so it's, you know, that, that's when, and that's what happens when yeah. you don't have good governance, when things are left unchecked. Uh, and when everyone's left to do their own thing, 
and um, you know, and that takes a huge amount of unpicking when you when you let things like that happen. So obviously, you can't do the work without the people. What do you think? What what do, what do you think around skills in the market, a shortage of talent, and the people that we have here on the ground in in New Zealand? Data engineers, I'm not so sure. I, I kind of feel like we might there might not be such a shortage of people in that space. I'm sure there's capability. Yeah, you know, there'd be different levels of capability, but I'm absolutely certain that there's a skill shortage in the data science area. Or, you know, the I mean, to broaden it out, because so, data science is a particular thing, but yeah. in the analytical space that we're looking for, for government, you know, there might be any number of people who can do analytical tasks, mm. but it's the higher capability that mm. that we're looking for. And yeah. and the and the thing that, that separates it for me, because you don't just want people who are technically capable, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's the conceptual thinking uh, that I think is the thing that, that sets good data science apart from, you know, not not good, and I've seen both yeah. of them. You yeah. know, there are people who are able to kind of take big data sets and do interesting things with it, right? Yeah. But yeah. it's the question of why. Yeah. Uh, how is this important? How is this going to be used to shape government decision making? Yeah. Rather than just a kind of interesting map or some dynamic visualization that um, that looks cool, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You see all sorts of things like that, but it's actually the conceptual thinking that um, I think is where we need to grow this industry Uh, and you know there's a whole range of other capabilities that we need in there or at least what might be deemed to be associated capabilities Mm -hmm. I think increasingly things like data ethics are actually really important go back to that conversation about algorithms Um, I think that's it's an area that um, is growing in interest and um, you know not necessarily something that's driven into data science courses in universities Mm -hmm. I'm a psychologist so it was like you know you spent countless hours in ethics classes in you know the early years of your career of your your education mm-hmm. but I don't think that's necessarily um, the case in a lot of other areas that are now you know coming into government and, and private businesses to, to do the work that's being done um, and you know for, for us in government obviously I you know reference back to our obligations mm-hmm. as treaty partners you know there's a whole range of things that we need to think about um, in that space and and you know there's not necessarily a dearth of people out there who are kind of really willing and able uh, to think that way about what that means yeah. in order to make sure that we're giving effect to our um, obligations. So, yeah. look, we're doing some work in that space ourselves to grow that to grow that capability and build that capability across the sector, um, putting in place, um, you know, looking at introducing a data ethics course into the data science tertiary curriculum. That's cool. So, yeah. um, you know, to try and get that working alongside the pathway of people into the industry. So that's looking pretty promising. And, of course, we're kind of looking at how we can uh, work with, um, you know, bringing people in through internships and grad programs and things like yeah. that. Awesome. So they can kind of get exposed to those sorts of things. You, you know, most of what you learn, you learn from being in the workplace. Yeah. So um, are there opportunities we can create to grow that, grow that industry for ourselves? Um, but there's no doubt in my mind that it's at the moment, it's, you know, the, the demand is way greater than the supply yeah. of high quality candidates. Yeah. Um, last but not least, the future of, of, of data. How's that going to look like at Stats? Uh, when I knew you were going to ask me that question, mm. I, I did a Google search, as you do, uh, to find out, you know, it's that sort of exponential growth curve. Yeah. And uh, 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years. Yeah. 90%. Yeah. It's kind of staggering, right? Yeah. 2.5 quintillion bytes of data uh, uh, being generated, yeah. you know, and that's probably, you know, that was a, couple, that was a year ago, right? Yeah. So the kind of growth uh, in this area is just extraordinary. Mm. Um, 
Uh, and the number of people who are uh, using data and accessing the internet, uh, you know, billion, you know, three and a half billion or something of us yeah. now access the internet regularly. So it's huge, right? It's huge. Uh, and it's going to get bigger and bigger. As I said before, you know, we generate a billion data points from our um, our census that we conduct every five years, you know, which right. is one of our data collections, which kind of, you know, uh, creates this extraordinary opportunity mm. to understand the world differently. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is one data set created by one agency in yeah. one country. Uh, so I think that the, there's a couple of areas that I think are really, really important. I think mm-hmm. the integration of data is mm-hmm. is critical. Yeah, and actually, StatsNZ is so three weeks in the job, but StatsNZ is absolutely world leading in this in this space. Uh, I don't know if your listeners have heard of the integrated data infrastructure. Basically, it's a data asset that's been created, um, starting actually from. Uh, uh, people who wanted to understand the pathway from tertiary education into employment. Um, so stitch tertiary qualification data together with tax records to understand where people go once they yeah. finish their degrees uh, or tertiary um, quals. And that's grown into this massive uh, infrastructure where other agencies have been putting data in there and saying, oh, well, how does that relate to benefit receipt? How does that relate to, you know, sub-tertiary yeah. degrees and, uh, you know, other parts of uh, other parts of government. So it's kind of, um, it's grown into this important, really critical piece of infrastructure for the government to understand uh, the New Zealand population, shape policy based on insight, and mm-hmm. then understand whether the things that we're investing in are working. So yeah. I see that interoperability as being the kind of, you know, the, 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 the growth, that's the area. Yeah. And that's where really unsexy but standards come into it. You know, mm. we need to kind of adopt, create data standards, uh, adopt them in, in the government data system and non-government yeah. um, to enable uh, data to interoperate more effectively. And then it just creates this huge exponential kind of growth in our ability to understand the world. Yeah. So that's one area mm-hmm. um, that I see the future. The other is leveraging mm-hmm. off public and private sector data. Yeah. Uh, and we're doing some work at the moment to broker those relationships. Um, awesome. We've got a kind of commercial arm at StatsNZ called Data Ventures mm-hmm. um, who we've freed up from the bureaucracy uh, to kind of create new insight uh, by brokering relationships with uh, private sector partners mm. to take data that, you know, from different providers yeah. who have no incentive to share data with each other because mm-hmm. there's commercial sensitivities around yeah. that, create some new insight and then give that back to each of those people who have, that have given that data to us. And I see a huge potential there because, you know, StatsNZ, for example, mm. you know, has unique legislation that enables us to do it. But also, uh, we've got no commercial imperative to, you know, we're not competing with telcos or, you know, card spend companies or whatever. So we have this ability through our legislation to do the integration, provide the value back so that we can create new insight yeah. and really understand the world better. So to give you an example of what they've done through COVID, they took telco data mm-hmm. from a number of different telcos and looked at where people's movements yeah. during the, the COVID situation. So, yeah. you know... You can't do that. Each telco can do that themselves because yeah. they can see, you know, picking off towers and whatever. Uh, but you don't really understand the full breadth of the population if it's just one telco. So we've integrated across many to see whether we're actually behaving differently as we've yeah. gone into those different periods of lockdown. Yeah. Please say we were uh, to create new insight, you know, <laughs> about how people, how people's behaviour changes during yeah. really intense, stressful times. We're able to do that really quickly. Um, they've also looked at card spend data, so brokering agreements between Paymark and other mm. card spend companies to see how our spending changes during these times so yeah. that we can really understand what impact that'll have on the economy. So yeah. 
I, I see that as being a really unique area, certainly where government can value add yeah. to the wider data system. Do you um, think that's the role as well of stats in the government to play? I think so, because yeah. I think it's unique. We're uniquely placed to do that. As I said, you need certain provisions to protect people's privacy to do it, which yeah. stats provides. Uh, and you need to be not, you know, completely independent and non, you know, you've got no vested interest in it, right? So, yeah. Which again, stats doesn't have that, have that vested interest. So I think there is a unique role for us. You know, most of the work that we do in stats, I think, is as a data wholesaler. We're mm-hmm. not in the retail game, but I think there are some unique retail opportunities like that where, yeah. um, where there is an opportunity for us to, to get involved because, um, you know, bringing that information together. And, of course, if we can add the, the kind of data that government collects into that equation, you yeah. know, the, the value is huge again, right, because government, probably more than the private sector, I'll, I'll have to think about that, but yeah. uh, has information about the whole population yeah. and lots of areas. You know, everyone goes to school. Uh, so, you know, we're collecting information about everybody uh, who, who's yeah. in the whole country at some point in time, right, uh, and not not in private private business. That's not often the case. You know, yeah. You're competing with others to for market share and so forth. So mm. if you can kind of get these things working together, yeah, for the right questions, I think there's just a huge, yeah. um, you know, huge huge opportunity. Yeah. When used well, right. So we need to make sure we've got the right safeguards in there. I think increasingly, um, you know, we've talked a bit about data being an asset, and mm. and I think that. The future is kind of digital inclusion and data being a really critical part of that, right? Yeah. You know, we've seen through COVID, for example, a whole bunch of people who are shut out of the digital economy, mm. you know, so, which is terrifying on one level. Uh, you know, I was in education at that time and 80,000 households with kids in school are not connected to the internet. Yeah. How do you keep learning when you can't be physically in a school? And yeah. you know, and you can't assume that everyone's going to be in schools for the rest of the uh, rest of time. Increasingly, as we move to a digital uh, world, mm. I think that digital inclusion is going to be a fundamental human right. Yeah. You know, and at the moment, it's, it's not. People are shut out of that part, and, yeah. and the people who are shut out are those most in need of it. Yeah. Right? So it's people with disabilities, Maori Pacific, uh, yeah. vulnerable communities, yeah. who are currently shut out, and I think that. You know the digital and data future of the world. I think is you know that's yeah. where that's where we'll be. And and I think that we're quite immature on our thinking around this. Mm. Yeah, everyone's still working it out what it means, what yeah. it means in government, what it means for private sector. Um, but you know this is um, a huge area of yeah. untapped potential. And so I think what you're doing is great. You know we need to be thinking about what's the capability we need into the future mm. to support that. Yeah. Yeah. How do we grow it, nurture it? Yeah. Make sure that you know the right the right things are built into the kind of development of that capability. Yeah. Like I've talked about trust, yeah. things that build trust and confidence and ethics and yeah. transparency and accountability and so forth, uh, um, so that we build that build that as we fly it. And I'm going to finish up with this, and I hope you don't mind. I'm going to take this away. The visionary thought of the right of digital inclusion. That is what it is going to be about. Yeah, you know we. In, as in education, we, we the first thing we did was, you know, didn't think about the data infrastructure. We were yeah. sending modems to people so that they can keep learning. And it didn't, you know, COVID didn't create that situation, right, uh, and reveal that situation. Yes. Everyone said, oh, you know, this is terrible. Yeah, uh, it's exposed to Yeah, it's been yeah. terrible for a long time, yeah. right? So yeah. actually, I think that's um, that's an area where, and I don't know the answer to it, right, mm. because there's a whole bunch of really tricky things about yeah. how you create that inclusive society but increasingly 
people are shut out of essential services and and we need to address that balance because i think it will i think it, you know 20 years in the future mm. people will go what you mean people didn't have internet <laughs> access right so you yeah. go you know you've seen you've seen these advances so i'm not one of those kind of futurists mm. and so i don't have that kind of uh, beautiful narrative around mm. it but but you have um you know you've seen these examples where houses are are actually a lot, you know, the houses are alive. Like they're yeah. wired up, right? The whole house is kind of, uh, you know, is internet enabled. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, at one level, that may be the future, mm. but at the very least, you know, every house will need to be connected to the yeah. internet so that you can access yeah. services. And it shouldn't have to, you won't pay for that. You know, that would just, just you know, it's just a service. It's free. It's just a service. Just, remember when you used yeah, to pay 20 right, cents yeah. for a text message? Yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. whether you're old enough to remember mm. that. <laughs> but, you know, like, uh, you don't do that anymore. Uh, you know, I, I used to remember dial up. <laughs> I used to remember when emails came in. Mm. Uh, you know, this is, you know, this this kind of change. It's, it's going to happen really rapidly. And, and, and you know, at, at some point, and not to just the future, you, you shouldn't be shut out through financial reasons. Yeah. Um, from accessing digital yep. services. So. That concludes episode seven of the Runstad Technologies podcast. Thank you very much for joining us, Craig. If you'd like to find out more about Craig, there's a bio for Craig and links to all of the podcasts available in the series on our website, runstad.co.nz. If you have any insights or questions about the episode today or any of the previous episodes you've heard in the series, please do send us an email on rtp at runstad.co.nz. Next week, we're going to be joined by Stephen Clark from NZTA. I hope to catch you there. See you next week. Human Forward. Randstad.